to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Is Cuomo facing impeachment? Will Biden initiate new gun regulations by executive order? Will Congress require us to tell us about what guns we own and where we keep them, and then make all that information public? Is illegal immigration in America now legal? Are you still on Twitter and Facebook, or have you been suspended? Are you too white, and are you ready to make yourself less white? These are only some of the questions that popped up this past week with news stories about what is happening to America, and I'll talk about them all. So let's dig right in. Well, it's finally true. After a year of blowing his own horn about how wonderful he is, Governor Andrew Cuomo may finally be coming to justice. You may remember that way back at the beginning of April, I talked about how the Navy hospital ship USNS Comfort sailed into New York Harbor and berthed at Pier 90 on its mercy mission to New York City to offer support for the expected surge of coronavirus cases there. At that time, it looked like New York City was going to be the epicenter of the pandemic in America. The ship had a thousand beds and was staffed by a crew of 1,200 nurses, doctors, technicians, and so forth. It was intended to serve as the referral hospital for non-COVID-19 patients who were currently being admitted to the hospitals in New York. The intention was that it would free up space in those facilities for local medical professionals to tackle the growing pandemic. But in the end, when that didn't work out, it was retrofitted to accept COVID patients. That didn't happen either. I told you back then that when the 1,000-bed ship finally left New York Harbor, 1,000 beds, only 182 patients had been treated there, 70% of whom were COVID-19 patients. Now, another 2,500 hospital beds were made available at the Jacob Javits Convention Center that was converted into a hospital by the Army Corps of Engineers. And this was also largely unused during what the governor claimed would be a huge surge in COVID patients. The Javits Center Field Hospital was originally also created for non-COVID patients like the Comfort, but it was then converted to a coronavirus-only hospital when the expected non-COVID patients didn't show up. The highest number of patients treated in the convention center, 2,500 beds, remember, was less than 500 people. And there were new tent hospitals on suburban New York college campuses, and they never treated a single coronavirus patient. It was all for show. But when it really counted, when patients could have been saved but weren't allowed to go to these brand new facilities that had been set up for them, they were sentenced to death by a callous coward whose only concern was his own image, which he promoted at every opportunity. Of course, I'm talking about New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo. In his infinite wisdom, Governor Cuomo crafted an executive order on March 25th 
that required nursing homes in New York State to accept coronavirus-positive patients and even demanded that these patients who had lived in the nursing homes then were sent to the hospital with COVID and then returned while they were still infected, he demanded that they could not be tested for COVID before being admitted back into the nursing homes and that even a patient known to be positive COVID could not be refused. This executive order was a death warrant for thousands of elderly New Yorkers who were trapped in their nursing homes that were not allowed to release them in the midst of the pandemic. So they died in distress and they died alone because even their family members were not allowed to come see them during their final days. And when nursing home administrators begged the government to allow them to send their patients to the comfort or to the Javits Center, they were refused. This has got to be one of the most heartless, cold, cruel acts of tyranny in American history. It was despicable. One Associated Press report revealed that between March 25th, when Cuomo issued his order, and May 10th, when he rescinded it, more than 4,300 recovering coronavirus patients were sent back to their nursing homes in New York because of Governor Andrew Cuomo's executive order. And thousands of people died. Painful, lonely deaths. This was a travesty. It was criminal. Thousands of people were dying in nursing homes while thousands of beds in COVID-ready field hospitals were kept empty. And then it appears that the governor's office intentionally underreported the deaths by as much as 50%. When I reported this to you last April, almost no one knew the scope of this catastrophe. But we knew it was a lot. And I told you at the time that I thought it was criminal and that Cuomo should go to prison for his malfeasance and for the promotion of his own glory at the expense of thousands of elderly New Yorkers. I said he should have gone to prison. Instead, he won an Emmy. He even wrote a book called American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. What hubris! He took credit for doing an outstanding job and blamed everyone else he could think of for the mistakes, for the errors, for the deaths, for the things that happened. He blamed Mother Nature and God, the New York Post, Fox News, President Donald Trump, nursing home visitors, nursing home employees, and even the nursing home residents themselves. Funny how he never thought it reasonable to take some responsibility for himself. In fact, and I've told you this before, at one of his now infamous daily press conferences, he was asked about his responsibility for the growing number of nursing home deaths as a result of his order, and he turned to an aide and said, I don't know anything about that. Do you know anything about that? He signed the executive order. What do you mean he didn't know anything about it? He won an Emmy for leadership, and we were shocked. But we were already getting used to his chutzpah. But we still didn't know the scope of his crime. 
The only ones who really knew the full extent of the tragedy were the families of those who died. Thousands of parents, grandparents, sisters and brothers, the elderly and the disabled, who were all left to die by a governor who was too egotistical, too arrogant, too selfish, and too full of himself to care about the people he was sentencing to death. Today, we have a better idea of the full scope of the crime, of his crime. The number of people who died because of his executive order is now known to be somewhere near 15,000. 15,000 people, elderly New Yorkers, dying alone and afraid. People like weather reporter Janice Dean, whose husband lost both his parents in this unthinkable power play by New York's governor, they were relentless in refusing to let this story die. Instead, they kept bringing it to public attention in every way possible. And they succeeded, because now, finally, nearly a year later, things are starting to happen. New York Assemblyman Michael Montesano said that he plans to ask the state legislature to consider impeaching Governor Andrew Cuomo. Cuomo's top aide revealed that their office covered up data and withheld the real statistics on COVID-19 nursing home deaths in order to avoid a Justice Department investigation. Well, that's reason enough for an impeachment. The president was impeached for far less. He was not responsible for any death, certainly not 15,000. So who knows? Maybe, finally, New Yorkers have found out the truth. Montesano, who is a Republican member of the state's Oversight and Investigations Committee, told Fox News, We've been calling for subpoenas and hearings for quite a while, and I'm going to be asking today for his resignation. And I'm also going to be asking the legislature to look into, to explore, filing articles of impeachment against the governor if he does not resign. This is now criminal. The governor wants to talk about how our attacks on him are political, but they're not political. We've had an inkling all the while that they were covering stuff up, unquote. It's about time that New Yorkers are finally talking about it and doing something about it. This story is far from over, so stay tuned. There'll be a lot more, and when it happens, I'll bring it to you right here on the Friedman Report. Dean says that she might have been able to forgive Cuomo if he had at least shown some compassion or accepted some responsibility. If he had sent condolence cards, for example, instead of boasting about what a wonderful job he did. So people like Janice Dean kept bringing it to public attention in every way possible. She even reached out to the governor himself before writing an op-ed for Fox News. The governor's office responded by asking her producer to provide the exact date her in-laws died and what her nursing home they were in. When Cuomo was asked for a comment, his spokesperson said, quote, a news organization reached out for a comment Sunday evening, and when asked for a context or details, they wouldn't provide it. The only bullying here is in someone else's head, unquote. 
Dean responded with a tweet. She said, quote, we're not comfortable giving out information until you give the at Justice Department the total number of all the senior deaths. It was a bully tactic, which they're known for, and I addressed it in the essay, unquote. On the other hand, Cuomo's own brother, Chris, who is still for some reason CNN's fair-haired boy and his brother's biggest fan, he is no longer allowed to cover his brother's bad behavior. That's CNN. Imagine. 15,000 people are dead, my friends, because of regulations imposed on nursing homes and long-term care facilities, which he knew at the time were dangerous and downright stupid. Cuomo made that abundantly clear. When people asked for relief, he said, quote, that is the rule and that is the regulation and nursing homes have to comply with it, unquote, period. I started talking about this back last April, shortly after Cuomo signed the executive order and we knew what was going to happen. We knew that people who shouldn't have been exposed to the virus were going to be purposely exposed because of this order, and many of them would die unnecessarily. And I told you that last April. So now, finally, things are starting to happen, and it's about time. Stay tuned, because this is a big story, and it's not going anywhere. And by the way, did you know that on the very same week that Cuomo finally rescinded his order on May 10th, Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer, extended a similar order in Michigan. Despite widespread condemnation about such a policy. Michigan's order is long and complicated, but it boiled down to this, quote, a long-term care facility must not prohibit admission or readmission of a resident based on COVID-19 testing requirements or results, unquote. It's not much different from the executive order that Cuomo wrote. And the results of these policies have been deadly. They prevented nursing homes from screening incoming patients for COVID-19. And they exposed the most vulnerable people in our nation to COVID-19. New York has the worst COVID fatality rate in America on a per capita basis. 1,478 per 1 million people. Michigan is not far behind. It's the eighth worst, with 507 deaths per 1 million. In reality, we just don't know how really deadly these policies have actually been because both states have lied about the number of deaths they've had. New York actually changed the way it was adding up the nursing home deaths near the end of April, while Michigan's Department of Health and Human Services says that it, quote, hasn't been able to offer concrete numbers, unquote. Meanwhile, Governor Whitmer extended her order again, this time to August 10th. It is difficult to believe the arrogance and the total disregard for these irrational and reckless orders that put the lives of the elderly and the physically compromised in such grave danger and far too many of them died as a result. 
But that's not all. There's more because this past week it's been coming out that Governor Cuomo is not only a bully, he's a sexual predator as well. Several women have already come forth to reveal his proclivity for making unwanted advances and ugly suggestive remarks to the women in his office. Now there are calls for his impeachment, his removal from office, and this story is going to go on for quite a long time. I'm not going to continue talking about it today because we have a lot of other things to talk about, but we'll hear more about Governor Cuomo and his disgusting antics. There's a lot more to talk about on the show. The stories have been coming fast and furious. Right after the break, I want to talk about President Biden's executive orders, the ones he seems to be signing on blank sheets of paper. So stick around. I'll be right back. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is the Friedman Report. I want to talk to you about online shopping for a moment. If you're like me, you're letting your fingers do the walking through the internet pages, right? Some of the things that bother me is that the big players in the online shopping market really don't support the ideals that I do, like law enforcement, the military, and honoring men and women who put their lives on the line. I don't think that a lot of the platforms do that, but there's a new one coming online in March. It's called ShopToTheRight.com, and it's pretty damn cool idea. It is all about having a shopping network that has all of the, the greatest deals. You can put your stuff on it if you're a business owner, but you can shop it because you know that, A, you're going to get the best deals, and secondly, you're going to be supporting a platform that supports America. It is going to be changing the way we shop, believing that our country is, in fact, an amazing place to live. So check it out. And I think you're going to want to support it. I know that I am. ShopToTheRight.com Fighting every day against the internet monopolies that are trying to stifle our right to free speech and freedom of assembly. Five years on the air and we will not be silenced. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Now here's a story that should have shocked you. The Democrats have promised for a long time that they would be sponsoring new anti-gun legislation, and to be frank, we've been expecting it. But it was still shocking when White House spokesman Jen Psaki admitted that Biden might initiate gun regulations all by himself, by executive order, without waiting for Congress. That is shocking. The president, or whoever is behind him pulling the strings, is running the country by fiat. He is creating law without the Congress playing any role at all. He commands it, he signs it, and it happens. Isn't it funny that only a few months ago, Biden appeared at a town hall in Philadelphia and assured ABC's George Stephanopoulos that he planned to govern by consensus if he won the election. Only a dictator, he said, relied on executive orders. Things you can't do by executive order unless you're a dictator. We're a democracy. We need consensus. 
That's what Joe Biden said just a few months ago. Then, in his first few weeks in the Oval Office, he signed more than 50 executive orders, a record by any standard, and 20 of them were direct reversals of policies that President Trump had put in place. Biden said, I'm not making new law, I'm eliminating bad policy. Really. But what he is doing is pretending he is king, ruling by fiat with a pen instead of a scepter, and with the full consent of an obedient Congress ruled by Queen of Washington, Nancy Pelosi. He also said, The last President of the United States issued executive orders I felt were very counterproductive to our security. Unquote. And yet, it was Biden who has threatened our security, our national security, and the security of our cities, and the safety of Americans throughout the country, by opening up our borders to anyone who wants to come in. And he is challenging the right of every American to protect him or herself when life is threatened. So, have you heard about H.R. 127? It's a doozy. This bill is called Sabika Sheikh Firearm Licensing and Registration Act, and it is described like this. To provide for the licensing of firearm and ammunition possession and the registration of firearms and to prohibit the possession of certain ammunition. Its sponsor, by the way, is Sheila Jackson Lee, Democrat from Texas, who knows next to nothing about firearms but considers herself an expert on gun control. No surprise there. The requirements of this bill will completely destroy the Second Amendment. And that will be the first brick to come down in the wall of our Constitution. It calls for the registration, quote, of each firearm present in the United States, unquote. Well, that's a tall order since it is estimated, as I mentioned last week, that there may be well over 350 million guns in the United States today. And that may be an undercount. That's more guns than people. A lot more. The bill reads like this. Under the firearms registration system, the owner of the firearm shall transmit to the Bureau, and they mean the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, shall transmit to the Bureau the make, model, and serial number of the firearm, the identity of the owner of the firearm, the date the firearm was acquired by the owner, and where the firearm is or will be stored. Really? I hope you noticed the word shall. The owner of the firearm shall transmit. That means, to those of us who may not be fully schooled in legalese, that means must. That means you will have no choice but to turn over exactly what information they require. And it doesn't end there. There's more. Quote, the Attorney General shall establish and maintain a database of all firearms registered pursuant to this subsection. The Attorney General shall make the contents of this database accessible to all members of the public and, of course, to all branches of the government, including the police and the armed forces. Hey, wait a minute. 
First, they make you register your guns and tell them where you're keeping them, and then release that information to the public so that any two-bit hoodlum can break into your house and go directly to where you store your guns. No problem there that I can see. And then when you apply for a license, you have to undergo not only a background check, but a psychological evaluation as well. This, my friends, is our government trying to undermine the intent of the founders of this nation. They put the Second Amendment into the Bill of Rights for one purpose, not to protect hunters or criminals, but rather to protect American citizens from the kind of tyranny that they had just fought a revolution to become free of. The kind of tyranny that this bill, H.R. 127, is trying to impose on us. Adolf Hitler showed us clearly that the first step in the creation of tyranny in a democracy is to disarm the people so that they can no longer defend themselves against the government. This, my friends, is what the bill means, and if it should pass, I don't think it will, but if it should, it will be a first step towards the end of American liberty. Government should never be so powerful that the people who elected it have no recourse against it when it begins to turn against them, deprive them of their rights and their freedom. Now, here's another story about another bill, and it's one that we need to be aware of. We need to pay attention. A crisis is now building at the southern border. It's a crisis that was created by the Biden administration. The throngs of would-be immigrants are now on their way to America. We just talked about H.R. 127, a Democrat gun control law. That's bad enough, but there's more, and it's even worse. It's called H.R. 1, and it's all about our election laws. They call this bill For the People Act of 2021, but it's anything but for the people. It's for the government. The people be damned. And they call it H.R. 1 because as far as Nancy Pelosi and her Democrat caucus are concerned, it is their number one priority. Here's what the Heritage Foundation said about it. H.R. 1 would federalize and micromanage the election process administered by the states, imposing unnecessary, unwise, and unconstitutional mandates on the states and reversing the decentralization of the American election process, which is essential to the protection of our liberty and freedom. It would, among other things, implement nationwide the worst changes in election rules that occurred during the 2020 election, go even further than eroding and eliminating basic security protocols that states have in place, and interfere with the ability of states and their citizens to determine the qualifications and eligibility of voters, ensure the accuracy of voter registration rolls, secure the fairness and integrity of elections, and participate and speak freely in the political process, unquote. The bill itself is 791 pages long and covers a multitude of sins that the Democrats are hell-bent for leather to pass at all cost. This bill, if it is passed into law, 
would cancel many of the guarantees in our Constitution that govern the independence of the states and the integrity of our decentralized voting systems that have governed elections since the founding of this nation. The Democrats say that it will expand voting rights and clean up political corruption. But Republicans call it a federal government takeover, and we accuse Democrats of trying to change election rules to benefit their party. For example, this bill requires availability of Internet for voter registration, use of the Internet to update registration information, automatic registration of eligible individuals, prohibiting states from restricting curbside voting, and much more. It says, for example, voter registration systems must be updated with 21st century technologies and procedures to maintain their security. We all saw how well that worked in November. And here's an interesting item. The term automatic registration means a system that registers an individual to vote in elections for federal office in a state, if eligible, by electronically transferring the information necessary for registration from government agencies to election officials of that state so that unless an individual affirmatively declines to be registered, the individual will be registered to vote in such elections, unquote. I say that this is interesting because instead of the opt-in process that is now in place in many states, they are creating an opt-out process. The way it works now is that if you're a registered voter and you haven't voted for X number of years, then you are, theoretically, dropped from the rolls and you have to re-register in order to be eligible to vote in the next election. Now, we all know that this system doesn't work very well because we know all about all the dead people who voted in the last election who had been left off the rolls in spite of the fact that they hadn't voted in decades. And that doesn't mention the people who moved out of state or out of country or just stopped voting. What this bill is saying is that if you want to drop off the rolls, you need to actively decline to be a registered voter. You have to say, I don't want to vote anymore. And if you don't do that, you will be automatically re-enrolled for every election. How many people take the trouble to do that? How many people will remain on the rolls long after they have moved away or died or just stopped voting? Are these the people whose names will be used in future elections by ineligible or illegal voters? When I applied for my driver's license in Massachusetts, I was automatically asked if I wanted to register to vote as well. No one checked my citizenship or my eligibility. If I was old enough to drive, I guess I was old enough to vote. No other questions needed to be asked. That doesn't seem right to me. Another part of H.R. 1 allows a person to vote on the same day that he or she registers. There's no delay in order to check the eligibility or citizenship of that person, and they define eligibility as, quote, any individual who was otherwise eligible to vote in that election, unquote. Well, that's clear as mud. It doesn't say anything at all. 
H.R. 1 would federalize the election laws that the Constitution clearly says belong to the state. It would centralize all the election processes and the laws that control them, destroying all state-controlled, constitutionally guaranteed regulations that made our elections fair, safe, and that protect our freedom. It would also legalize all of the worst changes in the electoral process that corrupted our national elections in November 2020. It would allow all the things I mentioned before, early voting, automatic voting registration, same-day registration, online voter registration. It would ban signature verification or notarization requirements for absentee ballots. And fraud would be an easy matter under these new laws. What the Democrats are trying to do is legalize all of the fraudulent activities that corrupted and overturned the legitimate election results in 2020. If that election taught us anything at all, it was that canceling of our constitutionally protected election laws will lead to the explosion of fraudulent elections and the collapse of our nation as we know it. Ever since I was a little girl, I always believed that our system of elections was fair and that the results were honest. Not so much anymore. I believe that fraudulent activities by the Democrats skewed the 2020 election results and shifted the outcome from Trump to Biden illegitimately. Am I a conspiracy theorist? No, not at all. Twitter thinks I am, so does Facebook, so do lots of liberals, I guess, but I'm not. I'm an intelligence analyst, and all of the evidence, and there is lots of it, point to the fact that everything I just said is true. Something happened to America this last year. It was the year when being white became a crime. It was the year of the pandemic. It was the year of the riots. It was the year that America lost its mind. It had been building for some time. The vendetta against the president, President Donald J. Trump, was continuing without a break. We called it Trump derangement syndrome, but it wasn't funny. It consumed the Democrats who were preparing to destroy the president at all cost. First, they spied on him. Then they made up a scandal with the help of a former Russian spy, and they lied about it in order to get FISA warrants. They organized and supported an investigation that went on for over two years and went nowhere, found nothing, but cost the taxpayers more than $40 million. They made up a phone call to the Ukrainian president and read the phony text into the record. Then they impeached the president, and then they impeached him again after he left office. They participated in fraud to swing the election to a man who spent most of his campaign in his basement, coming out only rarely for small and brief appearances. Joe Biden's transfer of power to Kamala Harris seems to have already begun, we have been afraid of this since last year when he was running for the primaries and showed bizarre behavior, 
Now, as reality sets in, his cognitive decline becomes more apparent every day, and the inevitability of his being replaced by his vice president, Kamala Harris, becomes more likely every day. This is not a pretty picture. Although Harris is still staying pretty much in the background and Biden is taking the lion's share of photo ops, his speech, his confusion is becoming more and more apparent. And if you want to think of something really scary, consider this. If Joe Biden has to step down and Kamala Harris assumes the presidency, the next in line for the Oval Office is Nancy Pelosi. The CPAC convention took place last week, and I want to talk about that right after the break. So stay tuned. This is Alana Friedman, and you're listening to The Friedman Report. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. The highlight of last weekend, for anyone who isn't a liberal, was the CPAC convention in Orlando, Florida. Liberals would have looked at it and scoffed, dismissing it as a super spreader. And of course, if you tried to look it up on Google, you had to go down many pages before you found any article that actually gave a fair reading of the conference. Google, you know, weights the articles by political persuasion, favoring the left-leaning articles and putting them first in any search and burying the conservative articles way, way down the list. So when I did a search for CPAC, I saw Huffington Post and MSNBC and uh, a whole lot of other articles. Huffington Post was talking about anti-Semitism at the conference, and MSNBC had an article called CPAC Can Stop Trump's Big Lie. Here's why it won't. These articles are clearly biased and present a skewed picture of what CPAC was all about. But the conference itself was exciting to anybody who came to it with an open mind. There were excellent speakers, and the topics they discussed were real and compelling. This was not an ordinary conference with semi-boring speeches, and lots of them. There were, of course, some speeches and some excellent speakers, including Marsha Blackburn, Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, Matt Schlapp, Gordon Chang, Larry Kudlow, Tom Fitton, Wayne LaPierre, Kristen Noam, and Jim Jordan, among many others. I'm sorry I left out so many names because there were so many good speakers and these were just the ones that come to mind first. The list was very long. I left out many important people. 
But the discussion panels were what interested me the most, and there were quite a few of them. Each panel had three to five people, and they discussed different topics, most of which were very interesting. They took on some of the hottest topics of the day, and although they only had about 15 minutes each, they covered an awful lot of territory in a very intelligent and thought-provoking manner. My favorite by far was the animated discussion, very animated discussion, between five black conservatives. And the title of this discussion was Doubt, Dysfunction, and the Price of Missed Opportunities. This was a discussion that every conservative needed to hear. Five articulate black conservative leaders, Sonny Johnson, the host of Sonny's Corner on Sirius, Angela Stanton King from the American King Foundation, Shamika Michelle from Hashtag Walk Away, Rich Valdez from This Is America Talk Radio, and the moderator, Maj Touré, the founder of Black Guns Matter. I love that name, Black Guns Matter. This was a powerful lineup. And they all took on the conversation that was all about the role that black conservatives must play to ensure their contribution to the conservative movement is meaningful and effective. It was an excellent discussion, and it certainly gave a lot of food for thought. But the highlight of the event of CPAC 2021 was the appearance on Sunday afternoon of the 45th president Donald J. Trump. It was his first public appearance since he left office. What was apparent to me was something I had never seen before. It was the reaction of the crowd to Trump. I certainly have seen the wild enthusiasm that Trump supporters have for their president, and I have seen the excitement that he generates. But I have never seen before the wave of love that came from that audience to their president. Democrats simply don't get it. The Americans who support Trump support him because he does what he says he's going to do. He keeps his promises. He delivered on what he said he would. His campaign promises weren't empty words. He meant them. And he kept his promises. He brought manufacturing back to America from overseas. He created jobs, millions of them. He lowered taxes. He lowered unemployment to record levels. He built most of the wall that he promised along our southern border, and he stemmed the flood of illegal immigrants from Central America to a trickle. He closed our borders to the Chinese plague and he rushed the development of COVID-19 in uh, nine amazing months instead of four or five years. He rebuilt our military, and he revived our American economy, as he said he would. It exploded in the first three years of his presidency. He didn't start the pandemic. China did. But he took it seriously. And what he did to combat it was truly remarkable. He rebuilt our military. He put America first. And he made us proud 
to be Americans. And he kept another promise, a promise that many presidents before him had made and none of them had kept. He recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and moved our embassy there from Tel Aviv. He developed a new peace initiative in the Middle East and created the Abraham Accords, bringing normalization between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco. In short, the love that his fans feel for him was palpable in the room, and it felt good. They believe that he lost the election through fraud, but they, they were not an angry group. They were a happy group. They were a positive group. They were a group that believed in their president and believed in themselves. They believed in the American values that we all learned that the way to keep America safe and strong is to honor the values of our founding fathers. They believed it and it showed. They didn't leave CPAC and then riot in the street. They left as they always have, peacefully and patriotically. Trump came to CPAC with a message of hope. Sure, he said his piece about the election, which he honestly believes that Biden won through election fraud. But his overall message was that there is a future for America and for the Republican Party. And the audience overwhelmingly agreed with him. It was a good conference, one of the best I have seen. It was interesting, it was exciting, and it was positive. And it bodes well for the future that even though the left may riot in the streets, the conservative Republicans remain peaceful and positive about the direction this country will go, that it will return to the path that Trump laid out during his time in the White House, and that America will continue to be what Ronald Reagan called the shining city on the hill. This world is complex, and the way we deal with it has an impact on our future. This past week, sabers rattled. Biden called an airstrike against Iranian forces in Syria. That came as a surprise to almost everyone, including those in Congress. According to reports, Biden didn't consult, he just ordered the attack. He explained it this way, quote, I directed this military action to protect and defend our personnel and our partners against these attacks and future such attacks. He wrote that in a letter to Congress, after the fact. He was talking about this attack being a response to rocket attacks against U.S. targets in Iraq on February 15th. The attack occurred in Iraq from Iran. So why did he order an attack in Syria? There are plenty of Iranian targets in Iraq where the attack on the Americans took place. Some Senate Democrats have criticized Biden over the strikes, asking for a briefing about why this attack was carried out without congressional approval. But the War Powers Resolution requires presidents to inform Congress only within 48 hours 
after taking military action. He didn't have to inform Congress. So Biden wrote a letter to them saying, quote, I directed this military action consistent with my responsibility to protect the United States citizens, both at home and abroad, and in furtherance of United States national security and foreign policy interests, pursuant to my constitutional authority to conduct United States foreign relations and as Commander-in-Chief and Chief Executive, unquote. According to a report by a National Security Council spokesman, some congressional leaders were, in fact, briefed before the attacks took place. Iran, of course, called the attacks illegal and a violation of Syria's sovereignty. Coming from Biden, it was a surprise to most of America, and it was interesting that this happened only one day after a group of more than 30 Democrat congressmen asked Biden to give up his sole authority to the nuclear codes. Bearing in mind what appears to be Biden's apparent cognitive decline, it is not surprising that this group of Democrats are eager to ensure the safety of the nuclear football and not let loose a nuclear holocaust on an unsuspecting world. This is not, by the way, the first time this has happened. Democrats were also worried about former President Trump having access to so much power. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in January famously spoke to Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, about protecting the nuclear codes from what she called an unhinged president. Well, it seems that even after so much change in Washington, nothing much has really changed at all. Except this. Joe Biden seems weaker every day. You know, when he was signing those so-called executive orders, it looked for all the world like he was signing blank sheets of paper. Presumably, the real signing was done behind the scenes. When news came out that Kamala Harris was calling heads of state, something only a president is supposed to do, that was another sign. And when Biden speaks extemporaneously, when he loses his place in the middle of a sentence, when he forgets what he's there to talk about, he looks lost. He looks like a man who is past his prime way past, and whose only thought is, when can I lie down and take a nap? I suspect I'm not the only one who wonders out loud how long he will last in the Oval Office. Is he really on the way out? Who's making his decisions for him? Who is writing his letters and telling him what to say? And how long will this last? I don't have the answer. I only have the question. But I'm afraid we're going to get the answer soon enough. Now, getting back to the Middle East. There was another attack in the region, this one by Iran against an Israeli ship. These explosions rocked the Israeli-owned Helios Ray, which is a vehicle cargo ship, a huge one, with Bahamian registration, 
as it was sailing out of the Persian Gulf on its way to Singapore on Friday. The crew was unharmed, but the bombs created two holes on its port side and two holes on its starboard side, just above the waterline. This was reminiscent of the summer of 2019, when Iran attacked oil tankers, several of them, in the Gulf of Oman. The naval unit of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, which has a base on the Gulf of Iran, also known as the Persian Gulf, the IRGC personnel placed limpet mines on the hulls of these tankers. And while Tehran denied that it was behind the limpet mine attacks, videos of the IRGC operations identified them clearly as they placed the mines on the hulls of those ships that summer. Well, it looks like they have done the same thing again, only this time their target was an Israeli ship. And Israel is not likely to take that lightly. If Iran is poking the bear by placing mines on an Israeli ship, it had better be careful what it wishes for. Israel now has allies in the region. And in fact, the Helios Ray went into the port of Dubai to repair the ship. Between the U.S. attacks on Iranian-backed forces in Syria and Iran's attack on an Israeli-owned ship, tensions are heating up in the Middle East. This is a wait-and-watch moment, my friend, as the pieces on the Middle East chessboard position themselves for whatever comes next. Stay tuned, because whatever it is, you can be sure I'm going to cover it on the Friedman Report. And a few words about what Biden's re-engagement with Iran really means. Reinvigorating the IRGC? Re-enriching Iran's nuclear program? Re-energizing the Iranian military, which was suffering terribly from Iran's impoverishment because of the Trump tariffs? How is that going to change the chessboard in the Middle East? What do Biden's efforts to re-engage with Iran really mean? Reinvigorating the IRGC, re-enriching Iran's nuclear program, re-energizing Iranian military, which was suffering from impoverishment by the Trump tariffs, and at the same time blocking the sale of advanced weapons to Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries in the region as part of the Abraham Accords, how will the chess pieces realign themselves? Biden does not seem to have any coherent Middle East policy. It's a disaster just waiting to happen, a spark in search of a gas leak. And the outcome is likely to be a new war in the Middle East, the very thing that Donald Trump was trying to avoid at all cost. Trump had a strong, cohesive policy. And it not only held the Middle East together, while holding Iran in check. It was the foundation for new peace agreements between Israel and some of her Muslim neighbors. And it was built on sound strategies. Biden doesn't seem to understand any of that. And as I said before, he may be doing very little strategic anything. He may just be a placeholder until the Democrats are ready to have Harris take over. We'll see. There's a lot at stake and every day begins with a question mark. There are a lot more stories, my friends, but we're at the end of our hour. Thank you for sharing it with me.
I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.